You can be seated. Take your Bible and join me in Psalm 126. This is not one of the requested psalms um, that I've had so far. Um, We will pick back up with some of those requested psalms, which Psalm 115 will be next week, and then Psalm 121 uh, will be the following week, and then after that, I'm still praying about what psalm to go to next, unless you give me uh, a favorite psalm of yours that's not Psalm 1 or Psalm 23, I'd be more than happy to... uh, uh, to preach that in the coming weeks. Um, Psalm 126, let's read it together this morning. I'm going to read out of the ESV version. The verses will not be on the screen this morning, at least initially, because I, I do want you, if you have your Bible, to get it out, or if you've got your device, whether that be a phone or an iPad, uh, just whatever way you're taking in God's Word, I want you to put your eyes on the Scripture this morning. A song of ascents, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray one more time. Even now, Lord Jesus, guard me, from myself. And may the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says this morning and hearts that will say nothing but yes, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. The Mountain Valley Cathedral in a remote Swiss village was one of the most beautiful churches in the region. One of the features that attracted people to this remote village and this valley cathedral was its beautiful pipe organ. People would come from miles away to hear the lovely tones of this organ, but one day the the organ fell silent. Musicians and experts from around the world tried to repair it, but to no avail. No one could succeed in repairing or restoring the organ. Then one day, a man appeared and asked permission to try to fix the organ. After working on it for several days, the community once again was filled with glorious music. Farmers dropped their plows, merchants closed their stores. Everyone stopped what they were doing, and they headed for church. When the old man finished playing, someone asked him, Sir, how did you fix the organ? He answered, It was I who built it some 50 years ago. I created it 
Now I restored it. This story is the message of Psalm 126. As it reads, it is a song of ascent. A hymn the Jewish pilgrims would sing as they would make their way and travel to Jerusalem for the varied holy feast that they honored every year. Some scholars argue that these songs of ascent, which are found in Psalm 123-134, are what are called post-exilic, which means that they were written after the Jews returned, the people of God returned from Babylonian captivity. If you're trying to figure out where that might fall in your Bible, it would have been written during the time of the book of Ezra or Nehemiah, because those are the... In chronology, those are the final two books of your Old Testament. It is where uh, the people of God have returned and they began to build the walls again and they be began to return to worship and Ezra brings the Scriptures back out and begins to read the Scriptures to the people of God and they begin to rejoice over the reading of the Scriptures and they fall down in worship overhearing the Scriptures. Many scholars believe that that would have been the time that Psalm 126 would have been written. And it has been this view that has shaped the interpretation of this particular psalm. It is always read as a psalm of thanksgiving for the deliverance from the bondage and a prayer for the complete restoration of the Jewish people to their land. But ultimately, we don't know the author of this psalm, or the occasion that prompted its composition. What we do know is this, that this psalm speaks of God's restoring Israel's fortunes, which leaves the psalm to refer to any number of occasions, right? Because if you read your Old Testament, what is the Old Testament about? God restoring His people, and then them falling again, and God restoring them, and them falling, and God restoring them. The Lord is forever intervening in the Scripture in the lives of His people. In fact, the words used in verse 1 are also used in Job chapter 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Psalm 126 is about a period of misfortune in Jerusalem, in which the Lord stepped in and turned things around. This, this ancient hymn teaches us that you can face life's turning points with confidence that the Lord has intervened in the past and He will intervene in the future. Let me say it this way. It is a reminder that because the Lord has done it before, He'll do it again. Anybody had that experience this morning? That you've had the Lord do it in the past, and He's done it again. You, you may be in a situation right now where you need the Lord to do it again. And praise God that you have a past that proves that the Lord can do it again. 
It is said that the ancients sung this psalm to celebrate the new year. And that would be, be very fitting for this song, this psalm, as it looks back to consider what God has done, but yet it also looks forward with confidence that God can do it again. Boy, we need those kind of songs, right? Don't we need to sing songs that remind us of what God did in the past? And songs that remind us that because He has done it in the past, He can do it again in the future. Listen, you can face any circumstance of life as you look back and consider what the Lord has already done. Listen, God has got a wonderful track record of faithfulness. We really do need to go back to that old hymn that we sung for years. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Verses 1 through 3 focus on a sovereign and gracious act of God. Look, look back at verse 1. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion or Jerusalem. The emphasis of these verses is not on what happened or when it happened. The, fo- the focus is on who did it. No, you didn't get that. The emphasis of the verse is not on what happened or when it happened. The focus of the verse is on who did it. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Whatever historical event this psalm celebrates, it was not, listen, it was not the result of a wise king. Can I modernize that? It wasn't the result of a Republican or a Democratic or an independent president. Well, that just must mean that there's a whole lot of people trusting in some presidents this morning. Because that should have been a, a universal agreement amongst the people of God that whoever's in the White House don't matter as long as God is on the throne. That's still not good, but it's better. It's not the result of a wise president or the act of a heroic soldier, even though today we celebrate our independence, and our independence has come at the expense of some very heroic soldiers, both men and women, or even the spiritual devotion of God's people. Listen, (laughs) the emphasis of this verse is that the Lord did it. As next Sunday's psalm will teach us, Psalm 115 starts out, Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. This psalm was written to teach us that we can live and serve with great expectations as we look back and consider the good and great things that the Lord has done for us. So let me just start with the first. The Lord has done good things for us. Oh, It's even on the screen. The Lord has done Great th- has done good things for us. You see, I thought that I might just stop right there and give you an opportunity to testify, but I was afraid that's, that this is a Baptist church. Unfortunately, it's on the marquee. We may not try to do church that particular way, but y'all would be quiet. 
About all I could get out of you is a mm-hmm. The Lord's been good, mm-hmm. But we need more than a mm-hmm. And I need more than just a, a nod of your head. You see, God gave you a mouth not to gossip with, but to glory in Him with. Oh, uh, We're good at talking about stuff, just not good at talking about the right stuff. You see, the Jews sung this song, psalm because, the Lord's, because of the Lord's divine intervention in their history. Anybody in here got some divine intervention in your history? As the New Testament believers, we cannot help but read this passage through New Testament eyes. This old story of divine intervention reminds us of our story of divine intervention. The restoration of their fortunes reminds me of the restoration of my fortunes. Because you see, when I was nine, I was broke and penniless. penniless. I was poor, pitiful, and blind. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 happened to me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And I love this next part. Once you were not a people, but now you are, watch, God's very own people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, that is your story of divine restoration. You are really comfortable in your sin and in your rebellion. You are very comfortably sliding and walking your way into an eternal hell. And yet God, in His great mercy, stepped in. He intervened by divine intervention into your life. And, I, you know, it, it amazes me. Let me go off the script here for a second. It amazes me at Christians who have no idea why, what they're doing on planet Earth. I wish I could figure out God's purpose for my life. I wish I knew what the Lord would want me to do with my life. Listen, He has already told you in the verses that I just read. He says... He has made you His own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. A mouthpiece. Let me tell you how good God is. Sit down there for a second. Let's, let's chat for a moment. Let me tell you how good God is. Let me, let me recount the goodness of God in my life. Well, how about let's just recount it since this morning. You got up. Best I could see, everybody walked in here under their own power. Right now, though you may want to fall asleep, though you may want to get home and eat because you got food that you can't wait to get to, God is keeping that heart beating right now. He's given your brain the ability to function, to even think about food, to even think about what you want to do the rest of the day, to even think about going to sleep. God is the one who right now, in every function of your body, is expressing His goodness toward you. Now one day the Lord's going to be really good to us, and He's going to stop all the functions of this body. That's when He really gets good. Because to be absent from the body, you see, God's got to take you from this body to be 
present with Him. Now, it's always, as some people say, good to wake, wake up on this side of the dirt. But if you're a Christian, there is a day that's awaiting that's going to be a good day when you're not going to wake up at all, except in His presence. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. We have much to be grateful for. God has been good to us. The Lord has done good things for us through the person and the work of Christ. It is enough that he, saved, that he saved us from the penalty of sin by amazing grace. But, but I want you to hear what James chapter 1, verse 17 says. I mean, if, if he just saved us, he would have done more than he ever should have done for us. But James, Jesus' half-brother, says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, the Lord not only saves us, but He just keeps on being good to us. The Lord keeps doing good things for us, but yet, in verse 2, it mentions that the Lord turns our dreams into reality. Look at verse 1. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. You see, the people of God had prayed so hard, cried so much, and waited for so long for things to change, that when the Lord intervened, they couldn't believe it. It was more than a dream come true. It was the dream that they had, that they did not dare to dream. It was Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. You remember as Paul is wrapping up chapter 3, he, he ends chapter 3 before he launches into chapter 4 with a prayer. And at the end of that prayer, he said to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could Ask or think. <laughs> what is God saying? Just ask me something and let me blow your mind. Our problem is, the Bible says, we don't have because we don't ask. They were like the church members who met in Mary's house. Do you remember that church gathering back in Acts chapter 12? James has just been martyred. They're all hunkered down and praying because Peter's been arrested. And they're praying and they're asking the Lord, Lord, deliver Peter. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. A little girl named Rhoda goes and checks the door. And there's a voice on the other side of it that sounds like Peter's voice. Well, there's no way it could be Peter. He's in prison. So she goes back and she tells him, Peter's at the door, and they tell her, no, there's no way, that's impossible. He's in prison, even though we're praying for his deliverance. You see, the Lord will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Isn't that amazing? They were praying, and no doubt they had to be not praying in full faith, but faith mixed with doubt, and yet the Lord heard their prayer and answered it anyway. So even in those, you know what that just tells me? Even in those moments when we're praying, believing with all that we can believe, though it may be tainted and mixed with doubt, God still hears our prayer and will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we will ask or think. None of us are in danger of asking for God for too much. None of us are in danger of asking God to do something that's beyond His own ability to do. What could you ask God to do that's beyond His ability to do? Nothing. 
You know, there's one way to tell if the Lord has done a thing or not. Do you know how to tell that? If you can explain it, then God didn't do it. I've often prayed, and continues to be my prayer, is that I would, I have, I have asked the Lord numerous times, Lord, I want you to move in our church in such a way that not one person in this church could ever dare take glory for what's happened. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to see God just move and act in a way where it's so obvious that it's God? It's so unbelievable that it's God. It's so beyond any possible human doing that all you could say is that it's God. When somebody, if somebody said, what's going on down at your church? All you can say is, I don't know, it's just God. Our preacher's not that good. The music's okay. You know, our leadership, they are what they are. They're not all that in a bag of chips. It's just God. That's the way I'd like. It'd be okay if you say, you know, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how they're, I don't know how what's happening is happening. Because the guy that's leading it, it's way beyond anything he's capable of. Or the people that's leading it. I think that's the prayer that God wants us to pray and a prayer that God will more than be ready to answer. The Lord turns, turns dreams into reality. That's what He does. But likewise, the Lord turns our sorrows into joy. Verse 2 records two results of the Lord's restoration of Zion's fortune. Look at it. Look at verse 2. The first result was joy. Then, then, our mouths, then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. This statement describes the dramatic way the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Psalm 137, 1-4 reports the lamentations of God's people during their Babylonian captivity. Listen, listen to these words. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered our home, when we remembered Zion... On the willows, there we hung our lyres. That's their instruments. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The children of Israel were so defeated and depressed and demoralized that they deemed it to be wrong and impossible to sing. But when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, guess what happened? Their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. That's how God is, and that's how God works. The Lord is so good that it ought to make us laugh sometimes. Has anybody ever done that? Have you ever just sat down somewhere and took a few minutes and just recounted all the good that God's done and it just caused you to laugh? It just caused you to well up with this, this laughter and joy inside of you like, God, I just can't believe 
how good you are. You know, that's, that's what happened to Sarah in Genesis 18. The Lord showed up to warn Abraham about the impending destruction of Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot lived. And then uh, the Lord told Abraham that Sarah would have a son, right? You remember that story? Even though they were beyond the childbearing years. When Sarah heard it, what did she do? She laughed. The Lord rebuked them, saying, Is there anything too hard? For the Lord? And sure enough, in Genesis chapter 21, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son, and they named him what? Isaac. Why is that important? Anybody know what Isaac means? The son of laughter. The son of laughter. Sarah explained in Genesis 21.6, God has made laughter for me, Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Indeed, God is so good that it ought to make us laugh sometimes. And God is so good that it ought to make us shout for joy. Not understanding the full implication of her words, one believing critic said back in the 1800s of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, she said this, Ah, Mr. Spurgeon, all the Lord... Excuse me. Ah, Mr. Spurgeon, if the Lord ever does save me, he'll never hear the end of it. Man, if we could just get Christians to believe that, right? Not that if the Lord, the Lord has saved you, we should never hear the end of it. Why? Because you have this life that is never-ending, this testimony that is ever-developing, this goodness of God that is forever showing up in your life. It ought to be that way for us because the Lord has saved us, helped us, delivered us, strengthened us, healed us. You should never let the Lord hear the end of it. We should join with the psalmist in Psalm 30, 11, and 12. You have turned me from my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with glad, gladness that my, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Not only has the Lord done good things for you, but guess what? The Lord has done great things for you. The first result of the Lord's restoration of Zion was joy, but there was another result. Verse 2 tells us that the Lord has done great things for them. The significance of this statement is found in the ones who made it. Who was making this statement? That the Lord has done great things for them. It was the nations, the heathen, the ungodly, the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelieving peoples of the world who worship idols and defiled Jehovah and hated Israel. Yet what the Lord has done for Israel was so great that they said among the, the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Psalm 42, 1 through 3. Listen to these words. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night. Listen, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Listen, in times of distress, unbelievers may taunt believers for having an absentee God. 
But the psalmist says, the Lord has been so good that even unbelieving nations had to acknowledge that the Lord has done great things. Listen, the world may taunt you now, but they must testify later. The world may taunt you now, but they must testify later. The world may taunt you now. Where is your God? But don't worry. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't doubt. Just know this. They may taunt you now, but they will testify later. Why? Because our God is a God who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Remember what I told you a couple of weeks ago? That theology works forward and backwards. I will never leave or forsake you. You forsake and leave, never will I. It works forwards and backwards. The Lord will permit taunting to show the foolishness of the taunters and faith of the taunted. Just stay faithful. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't get downtrodden. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the words that they are saying. Why? Because there'll come a day when the taunters will be, will be proven to be what they are, and that is nothing but foolish. But look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Is this your proclamation amongst, uh, amidst your own circumstances? When driving, we must be careful for blind spots. While focusing on what is ahead, we can fail to see the cars around us in the periphery. And you can become so preoccupied with your situation that you cannot see the goodness of God all around you. Other people can see the grace of God on your life as you are blinded to it. God help us not to be blinded to God's goodness. So let me advise you to look around and see the great things that have happened in your life. See that the Lord has done it all. And see that He did it for you and not against you. See the great things the Lord has done for you. And listen, and be glad. It didn't say rejoice for your circumstances, but it said rejoice in your circumstances. And we need to be glad in our circumstances. But let me move on real quick. Look ahead with confidence that the Lord can do it again. Now, He's done it in the past, as if that weren't not enough, but He is, look with confidence and great expectations that the Lord can do it again. John Wesley, the great Methodist hymn writer, said, wrote this in a hymn. He said, Where is the joy I knew when I once saw the Lord? That's the question of verse 4 through 6. In verse 1, the psalmist joyfully remembers when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. But listen, listen to this. But in verse 4, the psalmist prays that the Lord would restore Zion's fortune. You see, this sudden and dramatic, dramatic shift from joyful remembrance to humble petition confronts us with the fact that times of celebration don't last. 
I'm amazed at the Christians who think they should just live in perpetual celebration. Even when they are the direct result of the Lord's sovereign and gracious intervention. James Montgomery Voice, a great preacher of the past, I love what he said. He said, exceptional joy usually doesn't last a long time. It can't really because life always is a combination of ecstasy and agony, good times and bad times, joy and suffering. Now that's a bitter truth, which we must embrace in this life, is that our triumphs do not last. Don't let your heart be discouraged by such a truth, for there's another truth which buffers its bitterness. The God who brought restoration yesterday is able to do it again today. In verses 4 through 6, we see an affirmation of God's authority and a reminder of our responsibility in the process of restoration. So this is where we're going to end. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Are you ready? God's sovereign authority is acknowledged in the prayer for help. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is an act of humility where we bow before God and we submit ourselves to His sovereign authority. What should you do when you find yourself at life's dramatic turning points? The psalmist answers in a word. Pray. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. This is the only prayer request in this, in this psalm. It is, a different, it is a simple petition. What is he asking for? God, restore our fortunes. The same terminology is used in verse 1. There it is, a celebration of what the Lord has done, but is used here as a prayer for future restoration. Literally, the psalmist is saying this, Lord, you have done it for us before. Please do it again. He prays for restoration after restoration. The Lord had restored Israel to their land after Babylonian captivity. Now they needed the Lord to provide spiritual restoration in the place of physical restoration. And this is the reality of life. There will be times when we need restoration after restoration. You'll need God to deliver you to something after He delivered you from something. You will need God to bring you into a new season after He's brought you into a new year. You will need God to heal you even though the doctor says you're healthy. You'll need God to give you a stimulus package even though your finances are in order. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And the one who restored you in the past can restore you again in the future. Notice how the psalmist describes this restoration. Restore our fortunes like the streams in the Negev. Now this is beautiful, and, 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 and I needed help in understanding this. So my research led me to this. The Negev uh, was the desert south of Judea near what is called Beersheba. And during the summer months, this Negev, uh, uh, there would be no rain. And so what would happen is that the Negev would become bone dry. There, there would be literally no water there. But suddenly the rains would fall in the winter and the Negev would overflow its banks with floodwaters. Now what is the Lord trying to, and what is the psalmist trying to paint for us in poetry to understand? The dramatic picture here declares that God is able to turn things around 
quickly, decisively, completely, completely, and suddenly. So don't judge the outcome by how things look. <laughs> you got to walk by faith and not by sight. You may be in a dry place. Your physical health, family life, financial status, emotional state, or spiritual condition might be as dry as the Negev. But the Lord can restore your fortunes like streams in the, in the Negev. The Lord can turn a desert into a river because the Lord can bring water from a rock. Our personal testimony is acknowledged in the principle of the harvest. Verses 5 and 6, look at those real quick. The picture shifts to an agricultural image that describes a process of sowing and reaping. Verse 4 tells us that God can bring restoration suddenly, right? Like rains that just come out of nowhere. But verse 5 and 6 tells us that there are times when God brings restoration seasonally. Streams in the Negev, those are the sovereign work of God. Alone, only the Lord can turn a desert into a river. But sowing and reaping requires a partnership of the divine and human responsibility. Our personal responsibility is acknowledged in the principle of the harvest. Look at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You see, this verse encourages us to look past the sorrow of sowing and look forward, listen, to the success of reaping. So look past the sorrow of sowing. That's what verse 5 says. Imagine a farmer who has suffered a drought last season. He sowed his seeds, but because there was no rain, his entire investment was gone, lost. When the time comes to plant again, he has only a limited number of seeds to plant. And last season's crop failure left him unable to purchase more seed for this year. So he sows what he has. He has no choice. But as he sows, tears flow from his face. The psalmist says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. You get what's going on? This is utter dependent dependence on God. I got nothing left. I could take these seeds and maybe I could grind these seeds up and make some, get some food out of it, make some meal to, to make a little uh, a pawn of bread to eat. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all that I've got left, even though I have nothing in reserve. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and I'm going to sow the seed because I'm going to trust God will give me a harvest. This is not the theology of the prosperity gospel. The Bible teaches us that we should sow in full expectation that we shall reap. We don't twist God's arm by saying, well, Lord, if I, I'm going to go out here and sow this seed and you better give me a harvest. It's like, Lord, I'm going to go out and sow, sow this seed believing whatever harvest you give me 
is exactly what I need. We're not talking about manipulating God. We're talking about trusting God. Notice the intermediate period between sowing and reaping and all that goes along with it. It's omitted. (laughs) The verse starts at the beginning and leaps to the end. The farmer sows in tears, then he reaps with shouts of joy. This little proverb is filled with hope. It says to us that no matter how difficult the present season may be, if you trust God with the seed you have sown, a harvest is on its way. Psalm 30, chapter 30, verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Look past the sorrow of sowing, and listen, here's my concluding point this morning. Look forward to the success of your sowing. Verse 6 gives us this promise, this guarantee. He says, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Seed for sowing is precious and costly. There's a famine in the land. The ground is unresponsive. The families, the farmer's family is hungry. The seed could be used to make bread to feed the family, but the farmer has taken a step of faith and decided to sow the seed into unresponsive ground. Trusting it will produce a harvest that will feed his family in the days to come and prepare him for the next season. Listen, that's what you've got to do. That's what I've got to do. I have got to trust God with what he has said. And why can I trust him? Because he's been faithful in the past. What makes you think he will not be faithful in the future? So let me ask us a couple of questions in closing this morning. Why doubt? Why doubt? Or maybe the better question is, what is the antidote to doubt? What is the foundation for great expectations? Is there ultimate proof that God will do what He said He would do? Is there ultimate proof that God will restore? Well, there is. And here it is. Jesus Christ Himself is the testimony of God's faithfulness. Listen to these words in Matthew 23-37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus sowed his life for us in tears. But on the third day, there were shouts of joy. (laughs) Why? Because he rose from the dead to give the fruit of eternal life. How do you know He will be faithful? 
He gave His own Son for you, dear Christian. How will He not give you all things that you need? What more proof do you need of His faithfulness? Listen, I got two kids. I would never give my kids up for any of you. Period. Not one of you. Y'all could all die and go to hell for all I care. I'm not giving up my kid for you. And at one time, I only had one kid. And I definitely wouldn't have given up my only kid. I might consider it now that I got two. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I just needed to bring some humor to the moment. Cause... But I wouldn't give my one and only child for any of you. But God says, I am going to prove my faithfulness. Because I'm going to give something that none of you would ever give either. To prove, to stake my claim on who I am and what I'm about. Listen, if you're a struggling Christian this morning, which is all of us, amen? And if you're not struggling, you get the sermon next Sunday. And I need, because I need to hear you. Here's what I want you to do so that you can have great expectations of the future. I want you to remember the cross of the past. And here's what I want you to remember if you're saved this morning, I want you to remember the testimony of the past. I wish I could sing, because if I could, I'd sing it to you. But I can hear. I can hear my grandfather singing this song. My grandfather, he's a big man, about 6'2", about 300 plus, baritone voice, sung in gospel groups. And I mean, son, he could belt. I mean, he could just... It, I mean, I can hear him singing right now. And one of the songs we used to sing constantly at the church I grew up in went this way. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. And then what I love, we lady that played the piano, Miss Dishman, she's over there and she... She never even looked at the hymn book. She, I mean, I think she knew it by heart. And she would rift on that song, and all of a sudden, those hands, she'd have a right hand go up and down, and she, she would play the chorus with such enthusiasm. And the people of God, even in that Baptist church, would sing in crescendo together, Love lifted me. And they'd hold out that me. Love, and then the choir leader would hold up his hand like that, lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. He gave you his only son. Why would he give up on you now? He intervened to save you from sin. Why would he not intervene you to save you in your situation? Instead of sulking this morning, 
Why don't you join the chorus of, of verse 3? The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Instead of pouting this morning, why don't you praise the Lord? For He has done great things for us. Instead of fixating on your circumstances this morning, why don't you by faith say, the Lord has done great things for us and He is able to do it again. Your circumstances may be bleak. They may say, they may say your efforts of faith are silly as planting a crop in the middle of the desert. But remember... We do not sow seeds of faith based on our circumstances or our conditions. We sow them because we are commanded. Trust the Lord in your unexpected circumstances and He will do the unexplainable. He will do the unexplainable. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. Listen, this, this message is no doubt, predominantly, for those who claim Christ as Savior. And we don't need many to show up this morning for me to make the following statement, that there is no doubt some of us that are walking through a very difficult time. And some of us are doubting and struggling and wondering if God cares, where is God, does He love me? You know that He died on the cross to save you from your sin, but you really wonder if He cares about anything beyond your personal salvation. And all I can say to you this morning is the Lord loves you so much that He brought you right here to this place this morning so that He could tell you, I care. I'm here. Look back at my track record. See what I have done and know that I am working even right now. And yes, I am working for your good, but more than that, I am working for my glory. And yes, you may be taunted by the world and, and the world may say, where's your God? And Satan may say, where's your God? And there's something inside of you that says, hey, where is God? And the Lord is saying, I'm right here. And I'm at work. And if I didn't spare my own son, how in the world do you ever think that I would give up on you when I gave him for you? And the Lord is saying to you right now, yes, you're in an unexpected place, but trust me and I will do the unexplainable because that's why I've brought you to this season. And I can end it, I, I can end it as quick as I can flood the streams of the Negev. But He also may be saying to you this morning, you know what, you're going to have to walk as a farmer does out into the field. And you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to sow. You're going to have to believe. And you're going to have to trust me that I'll do what I say that I say that I will do. And if you trust me, I promise you, you'll rejoice. There is rejoicing in trusting. Weeping may endure for a night, but those who trust in the Lord 
will experience joy. And he's just saying to his children this morning, just trust me. I'm not doing you harm, I'm doing you good. I have not abandoned you, I am with you. And what he wants you to do this morning, he wants you to sing out to him. He wants you to rejoice in Him. So Father, this morning, I lift up Your people. And I ask You to to do what only You can do. Many find find themselves in unexpected places this morning. But they are there because you do the unexplainable in the unexpected. But more than that, Father, I pray this morning as we sing this final song of of worship to you that you would begin to create in this group of people that is joined here this morning a resolve in their heart to say, The Lord has done great things for us and He will do it again. Grant us that resolve so that the world can see Your greatness and those who currently taunt us will have to testify that you are great. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing this final.